The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Quote, As long as space and time divide you from anyone you love, love will simply have no choice but to go into battle with space and time, and, furthermore, to win. End quote. That's author James Baldwin talking about the essential power of love. It's a day to celebrate love today, but of course every day is a day to celebrate love, or it should be anyway. We will hear from a writer of romance novels and ask her whether her books must have happy endings or satisfying endings, love thwarted at the beginning, love overcoming obstacles, love triumphant. Is that life? Is that love? Sometimes, perhaps. We'll also hear from our friend Margot as she reads more of Boswell's Life of Johnson. Does she still love that book? And we'll hear from a poet who hated love. The love that made him absolutely miserable. Love, love, and more love today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Love! Love in all caps. Love written in the sky with a finger. Or maybe it's just a magic finger. (laughs) A giant magic finger, I guess. Or maybe it's just what we see when we gaze at the sky when we're in love. Speaking of love, how about the love of a podcaster for a bunch of listeners, a whole nation of them? You might wonder whether we still have more number one countries to thank. These are the countries that have at one point or another chosen the History of Literature podcast as their number one podcast in the books category, according to the trackers at Chartable and Apple. We've already thanked six or seven of them, I think. Do we have one more? At least one more. Indeed we do. Uganda gets the nod. Thank you, Uganda. To all those wonderful listeners there, I hope you are all doing well. Many thanks to you for making our humble little podcast your number one books podcast, at least for some period of time. Moving on, we have lots of love, a whole lot of love to talk about today. But I know what some of you are thinking. This is torture. Everyone's in love all the time and Jack W. is all pie-eyed and lovey. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Gag, gag, gag. How disgusting. If you're not in love, love stinks. It sucks, it bites, it blows. Love can be pretty rotten when, well, when it's unrequited. That's a, that's rough stuff. And when it's absent in your self, but everyone else is feeling it, that's bad too. I get it. So let's start with a miserable lover, our old friend Catullus. We talked about him a million years ago, and at some point I want to give him a full episode for myself, if not for you. I love this guy. For now, let's just revel in one of his poems. He was a poet of the late Roman Republic, living in a Uh, living a fairly short life in Rome in the first century BC. He fell in love with a woman he called Lesbia in his poems. It was probably an upper-crust woman named Clodia Metelli. Clodia was the 
wife of a proconsul and had something like five lovers in addition to Catullus. Catullus loves her so much that he hates her. How does that happen? He wants her. He wants to be with her. He wants her to want him, and she doesn't want him. Or she doesn't want him only. It's a recipe for a miserable person. But also a recipe for some wonderfully bitter poetry. While Virgil was writing poems in the style of Homer, rolling out long epics, Catullus was writing short, stabbing poems of the heart, cries in the night, howls of longing and frustration and despair. Here's one called Catullus, You Wretch. Catullus, you wretch, stop talking like a fool and say that what has died is truly dead. You once were used to happy, shining days when you would go wherever she might lead. The girl was loved as none was ever loved. A multitude of pleasures happened there. You wanted them, and she did not refuse. Yes, you were used to happy, shining days, and now she doesn't want you. Therefore, now you must not weaken. Follow in pursuit when she escapes, or live in misery. But bear up with a hardened heart. Stand firm. Goodbye, girl. Now Catullus does stand firm. Not seeking you, nor pleading against your will. But you'll despair when no one asks for you. Get out of here, bitch! What a life you'll have! Who'll come around? Who'll find you beautiful? Whom will you love, or who'll call you his own? And then, whom will you nibble at and kiss? But you, Catullus, stop! Be stone! Stand firm! L-O-L, Catullus, what a wretch you are. Even when you're at your angriest with all your bravado, your insistence that you and you alone could please this woman, that she'll recognize that you're gone and feel sorry about it. You're even in the midst of this dismissal of her. You're, oh, you'll be sorry to see me go. Even then you start to fall back into her grip and think about who she'll be nibbling and kissing. You can't stop. Thinking, longing for those days gone by when she didn't say no all the time. And the image of her, your beloved, doing those things to someone else drives you so insane that you cut yourself off. Catullus, stop. Be stone. I read it angrily, but you could hear it in a pleading tone too, can't you? Catullus, stop. Be stone. Stand firm. Again and again, you repeat that little phrase. Stand firm, Catullus. Please, you know you should, and you know you can't. That's love in a nutshell, isn't it? The inability to stand firm. Sometimes it works out, and you think, thank goodness I didn't stand firm, or I would never have had all of this. And sometimes you lose your mind and your body and all your good sense, and you think, if only I could have stood firm. I knew I shouldn't have texted her over a hundred times before she texted me back. I knew I shouldn't have written her those those sonnets, that sonnet cycle. (laughs) 
one sonnet, maybe 99 sonnets, kind of pushing it. I knew I shouldn't have announced that my love for her is akin to the love that Jack Wilson has for the good people of Uganda. That was overdoing it. Well, sometimes we get carried away, don't we? Speaking of love and standing firm, the last time we checked in with Margot Livesey, she was loving the book Life of Johnson by her fellow Scott James Boswell. She had stood firm all her life, not reading the book, thinking it was going to be strong medicine. Good for her, but a little dull to the palate. Instead, she opened it up and discovered a great literary friendship within, full of comedic moments, extraordinary witticisms, and a kind of world that invites a literary-minded reader inside. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and I was glad to discuss it with her. We will hear part two from that discussion from her next. After this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our friend, the Scottish and American novelist, Margot Livesey, who's joining us for another look at one of my favorite books, Boswell's Life of Johnson. Harold Bloom said that Samuel Johnson was the greatest literary critic in the history of the English language, and it wasn't close. And in Boswell, he found a biographer worthy of his talents. Margot Livesey, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. So, Margot, this time I wanted to start by reading a passage to you. This actually comes from the introduction of the edition that we're reading together, which is edited and introduced by Christopher Hibbert. And here's the passage. Quote, Boswell spent almost a year in Holland, then embarked on a grand tour of Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and France. 
He failed in his ambition to be received by King Frederick the Great, but he contrived for himself meetings with both Rousseau and Voltaire and had himself presented to the Pope as Baron Boswell. From Italy, he sailed to Corsica, where, with the help of a letter of introduction from Rousseau, he managed to gain an interview with Pasquale Paoli, the Corsican's leader in their struggle for independence, and where he obtained materials for his first successful book. It was not until February 1766 that he returned to London, bringing with him Rousseau's mistress, who was going to join her lover at the lodgings of David Hume, and who had allowed or enticed Boswell into bed with her when they were waiting at the at a clay inn for the departure of the channel packet. But Boswell was unable to stay in London long. Then it says, within a month he was back in Scotland, where he set up as his mistress in lodgings in Edinburgh, an ill-bred rompish girl, admirably formed for amorous dalliance, and where he settled down earnestly to prepare himself for his final examinations in Scots law. He passed these examinations in July, and so at the age of 25, he was admitted as an advocate and faced with predictably conflicting emotions, a future in the Edinburgh courts of law. He married his cousin, Margaret Montgomery. Margot, this is all, <laughs> is this how you guys <laughs> roll in Scotland? I just can't believe the, the way that he's flying around and the people he's meeting and all of these interconnections and just his, his gusto for pulling all of this off. I, I know, it's, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, you would think that there were only about 100 people alive. Yeah. I mean, it's a, bit, <laughs> it's a bit like a Dickens novel come to, come to life. Every time you turn a corner, you know, there's, there's David, David Hume or yeah. George Eliot. Or right, someone. right. Well, George Eliot, of course, is much later. But Right. Ah. And of course, Boswell is just um, very, very interested in women. Yes, right. And I have read the the diaries of Boswell, uh, which are quite a wild ride. He definitely was. He he had all kinds of dalliances, amorous dalliances, and all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. And both of those were they sort of rival each other on the page for space on the page. He was kind of insatiable. Yes, and um, it's a wonderful quality in part because the insatiability gets turned into such wonderfully specific language. Yeah. He just describes things with, in, with such vivid detail and often so, so poignantly. Mm. Yeah, and you know, this is, I know we're still early in the book, but Boswell, well, let's talk about Boswell first. So, how do you like him so far? How's he doing as our guide to the life of Johnson? Well, I think one of the things that came across very strongly for me that is that he almost worships Johnson. I mean, yeah. it, 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 he doesn't just admire him. He venerates him. And when they meet, I mean, there's near, well, I suppose throughout their lives together, when they meet, Johnson is nearly 30 years older than Boswell. Yeah. And, and Boswell has so much kind of cheek and chutzpah in in turning Johnson into a friend, in, yeah. in courting him, really. Right, right. And he's he's kind of a father figure, but he's also sort of a friend and, and admirer. I mean, he, he wants more—I mean, Boswell is—he he wants more than just a father figure. It's like he wants to— I don't know. He has Johnson on a number of pedestals, it seems. He 
Yes, and you can feel that, I think, when you read, for instance, his descriptions of The Spectator, the mm. bi-weekly publication that Johnson wrote for two years while he was in the midst of the dictionary. And Boswell says something like, um, obviously, the sorry, not The Spectator, The Rambler. Boswell says something like, the Rambler lacks variety because... Obviously, it's all written by Johnson, um, <laughs> but it makes up for that in 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 moral intelligence. Yeah. And I always I like the way he's you know so willing to give Johnson the benefit of the doubt. Mm. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, one could say that it's annoying to have a biographer who's a hagiographer. As yeah, well. right. But I didn't feel that. I felt it was part of the charm of the book. Yeah. He's so full of energy. It's it's very infectious. I think even if you uh, didn't know anything at all about Johnson, but if you like books and you like literature and you like criticism and and you like poetry, Boswell's, his enthusiasm for Johnson as a, a leader in all those areas is, it's very charming and winning. It is. And then, of course, there's also the endearing fact that he's always aware of being Scottish and of Johnson's um, prejudice (laughs) against the Scots. So (laughs) when he first meets him, he's apologizing madly for coming from north of the border. Right. But he always tries to slip in a a few. uh, He advocates for Scottish thinkers and Scottish writers as well. Yes. Okay, so here's something I wanted to mention. I hadn't really appreciated this before, that Boswell is kind of like, he's kind of like Plato is to Socrates, where he hurt, I mean, we only get Boswell's version of what Johnson is saying for a lot of this. And like Plato with Socrates, we don't, Socrates isn't writing, we're hearing what Plato is saying that Socrates said. Uh, and Plato's revisions to Socrates maybe makes Socrates into the figure that we now hear as Socrates. And so in the introduction to this edition that we have, we hear something that suggested to me just how strong Boswell's tweaking helps us form this view of Johnson. And Johnson throughout the book has this thunderous, declamatory voice, and his sentences are perfectly balanced, and he comes across as just the greatest conversationalist of all time. But there is a revision that's revealed in the introduction where we have a a separate account of something that Johnson had said, where David Hume had conveyed that after Johnson went backstage to visit David Garrick, his former pupil, who was now the most famous actor in London, and Johnson went backstage to visit him, and he stayed in the green room, mingling with the actresses, and Garrick said he hoped to see Johnson often. And here's the difference in what Boswell provides. So Hume gives Johnson's reply as, quote, No, David, I will never come back, for the white bubbies and the silk stockings of your actresses excite my genitals. And Boswell writes this <laughs> Boswell writes this up as I'll come no more behind your scenes, David, for the silk stockings and white bosoms of your actresses excite my amorous propensities. And it's just it's just enough of a uh making it more sophisticated, more refined, more discreet, and more sort of thoughtful 
than what Hume was conveying, which is probably a lot more closer to the word-for-word description of what Johnson actually said. But it made me realize a lot of what we're, we love about Johnson in this is really we love about Boswell's Johnson. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I, what I learned from the introduction was that actually uh, Boswell had spent probably only about 300 days in Johnson's company. Mm, yeah, that right. An awful lot of what we get is, is a reconstruction um, filtered to us both through other people and then through Boswell's admiration. Right, right. Okay, well, Margot Livesey, let's talk about your books for a moment. We've pointed people toward your novel, The Boy in the Field, in the past, which is now out in paperback. How about another one to recommend? Maybe The Hidden Machinery, Essays on Writing? That's still for sale, right? That is still for sale. <laughs> and um, um, it was a book that I it wrote over maybe a quarter of a century. All the time I was resisting reading The Life of Johnson, I was writing The Hidden Machinery. And if only I read John Boswell sooner, I'm sure he would have played a role in the book. Well, maybe that was something of a failing on your part, but the world benefited from it that we got the book that we did. Margot Livesey, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Such a pleasure, Jack. Thank you. We have a couple of little tastings today. First, we had Catullus and then Margot, kind of like eating a sour grape and then a sweet one. And now, the full goblet of wine. Mimi Matthews here to tell us all about love and lovers and what it's like to write about them. Her book is called The Siren of Sussex, which follows Evelyn Meltravers, an incurable blue stocking determined, this is a in the Victorian era, by the way, that's Mimi's specialty. Evelyn Meltravers is determined to make her first and only season in London a success, the only way she knows how, on horseback in Rotten Row. She enlists the help of Ahmad Malik, a half-Indian dressmaker who dreams of opening his own shop and designing dresses for the ladies of the ton. A partnership to secure their futures, except, yikes, a sparkling, forbidden romance arises between the two. Will the two strangers push the boundaries of acceptable Victorian society? We will ask Mimi about the pleasures and perils of a forbidden Victorian-era romance. Next. Okay, joining me now is USA Today best-selling historical romance writer Mimi Matthews, who writes historical nonfiction and award-winning proper Victorian romances. 
She's also written for the Journal of Victorian Culture and the Victorian Web. Her new novel, The Siren of Sussex, brings the Victorian era to vivid life, telling the story of a determined London bluestocking and a half-Indian dressmaker who team up to take Victorian high society by storm. Mimi Matthews, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start with the era. What appeals to you about Victorian society? There is so much. So I'll try to I'll try to get, yeah. keep it just reduced to its <laughs> most basic elements. Well, uh, let me just interrupt. I'll say I've been to your blog, and so I know that you cover lots of different uh, aspects of this. So I can imagine that it's it's hard for you to kind of boil it down. And in fact, on Sunday, I had my boys were watching football games on the television, and there I was immersed in a blog post about Victorian eyebrow fashion. So uh, oh <laughs> I know how compelling it can be. So go ahead. What, what do you like or what first appealed to you about Victorian society? I think that from a author perspective of writing romances, the thing that most appeals to me is the contrast between all of the rigid rules and formality of the Victorian era, mm. which is what people associate with the Victorian era. Right. You know, they were so placed, they were so proper. But it's that contrast with the enormous changes that were happening at the time. There were so many advancements. The world was changing so rapidly in terms of medicine, science, technology, and just overall the surge of knowledge about the world around them, you know, humans, animals, nature, everything. Mm. And it's almost like they're trying to maintain this rigidity while everything is shifting beneath their feet. And I like stories where characters have to navigate, you know, making changes, adapting to these changes in society and learning to interact and accept different paths toward happiness, you know, that are not necessarily the traditional paths that their parents and grandparents had, but sort of things that are going into a a new world, whether it's crossing classes or leaving the sphere of just, you know, society they were born into and going into another sphere by marrying a tradesman or somebody who is not of the same race. All of that is just very fascinating to me. And I think it provides a lot of tension, you know, to see how much they're willing to adhere and how much they're willing to rebel against Mm. the constraints put upon them, especially the Victorian women, because they were more constrained than Victorian men in many ways. So as a romance author, it's all just endlessly fascinating to me. As you could probably tell from my blog, at pretty much any topic when I'm researching something, I'll I'll see something and it may not even be the thing I was researching about and my brain sort of spins off like oh that's that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you have a connection with England or Great Britain in your background or your one of your parents or anything or are you traveling through space as well as time? A little bit of both. So my biological father, my parents divorced when I was young, but my biological dad was born in India mm. right as it was transitioning out of control of the British Raj. Mm-hmm. And so I had an interest in that part of my cultural history of what it was like to live in a country that was, you know, under control of, of another country sort of like that and and to sort of be a second class person in your own country. Yeah. On my mom's side, uh, unfortunately, we're American way back to like the 1700s. And after that, I think it's Dutch. So no English, <laughs> no English connection <laughs> there. But I have been to England and um, love it very much. And I have an English degree for undergrad. And when I was getting my law degree, my Juris Doctor, I 
did a lot of research into British history, the Chancery Courts that I got to write about, which just further encouraged my wow. love mission with the era. And uh, particularly because I got to reference Charles Dickens a lot when I was researching that, an yeah. author that I love, yeah, unparalleled <laughs> in my mind. Right, and and he had a connection with the courts. I think he was a, he started out as sort of a form of an intern and watched them up close. And then, of course, Bleak House and, and several of his books have the court system at the time. You know, I, I was going to ask if there were, if you could trace it back to childhood love for any particular novels or television adaptations or anything like that, if you remember when it was your sort of first encounters with the Victorian era? I think if I went back to even like pre-five years old, for as long as I can remember, my mom has been watching every adaptation that exists of Jane Eyre. (laughs) So I I have memories of Jane Eyre in the background, you know, the ones with like George C. Scott as Mr. Ross, like the old ones. So I always was exposed to costume dramas. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I just grew up with a, a love of reading. And so I was reading, I guess what you would say were more adult books like Jane Eyre at a very young age. And I just loved everything about it. And I think that when you're young, to a certain extent, it's because the the gowns are beautiful. It seems like a simpler time. Everybody was riding horses, which I'm a horse girl. So anything where you just have horses as part of daily life. I thought, I want to live in that era where I could just have a horse, you know, on my at my property. <laughs> mm. But as I grew older, you know, there was more nuance to it, but definitely starting out, it was just the beauty of it. You know, so much of it is in the countryside with these beautiful houses and beautiful clothes right. and the romance of it. But yeah, I think it must have started there, even subliminally, before I really understood what it was my mom was watching, uh, this exposure to costume drama. Yeah, there they are with those clothes, going on those walks through the country and, and in those homes. And it is uh, such a distinctive look that you see when you watch a show like that. Yeah, it's all just so beautiful. It Mm. it makes you feel like this was a better world, you know, a simpler, gentler world. It really wasn't. But the impression a lot of us, you know, get right off. And sometimes it doesn't ever go past that. You always think of it that way until you research a little bit more and then you realize, huh, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right, right. Maybe Maybe some of the restrictions were actually harmful to people, or maybe things aren't quite how they appear when we watch them on television. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you started out and you said basically this was a, a period where people were hanging on to some strong sense of societal norms and, and values, even in the midst of this rapid change, it made me think that is really fertile territory for a novelist, because you could imagine one character wants to embrace progress and another one is more anxious about it. You could have generational conflicts or you could have even that conflict uh, within a single person that they might, you know, sort of be reluctantly facing forward, but also kind of regret what they were giving up with all of this change. And it, it seems like I don't know. Is that kind of how you begin a book? Are you thinking of characters and and thinking, well, here's a person who's going to be, you know, headed for the future. And here's another one who's going to be trying to kind of hang on to the past. Right. And, you know, in some ways, I start my books in a 
weird way. I, I'm not somebody who plots out. Um, I don't outline. Mm. I usually have an idea for a particular scene and it's not the beginning scene. Usually it's some scene in the middle that is enough that is compelling enough to me, just my own interest that it will provoke me to build a story around that. And then usually from that scene, I have an idea of the character's personalities and the setting and sort of what's driving them but it develops more as I write, um, almost like in a discovery sort of draft. Mm. And you, but usually you're right. The things that you're talking about, the different ways people feel about progress and about adhering to old, more old fashioned or the norms they grew up with, um, that is a source of conflict. And for a lot of people in the story, and sometimes even in the same person, because not only because some people just wanted to keep to the old ways and and were suspicious of the new ones, but because it was scary. I mean, this was a lot of change. Yeah, um, right. it, it was just scary. And there was so much that was unknown. I mean, some of the advances in science and some of the advances in more technologically, like even trains cutting across the countryside mm, yeah. to a more rural life. It all just seemed big and noisy and scary and uncertain. So um, there was a lot that people had to examine themselves, and um, it it just requires a level of introspection, I think, for each of the characters uh, to determine what their place in the world is and how much they're willing to dare, you know, Mm. because it's frightening, but, um, you know, how much they're willing to dare for, for what they want and how much they newly discover what it is they really want. It may not be what they thought they want at the beginning. In fact, most of the time it's not. It, it changes and it becomes something totally different, usually something they hadn't even envisioned at the start. Yeah. I encountered something, you'll enjoy this as someone who likes horses, I think. I encountered something the other day in a sort of improbable way, but I got, I got a little information about the Pony Express that kind of emphasized this to me. This is, now we're back in the world of America, but it, and I, I, I hope I have the numbers right, but it was basically talking about the Pony Express when that was, I think it was 1860 when that was introduced. And they said they could now deliver a letter in 10 days, what used to take weeks or months to deliver. And then they said a year later, it was replaced by the telegraph. And I thought, yeah. Imagine that. So you have, say, in, in, you know, if we imagine it now, in 2019, you could expect that it would take months to hear from someone, you know, halfway across the country. And then in 2020, it would suddenly be 10 days. And then in, in 2021, it would be almost instantaneously. It's sort of, uh, you know, when you think of how nice it is to be insulated from people. None of us really feel that now with email and and cell phones and everything. But when you feel like you've sent something off and you know you have some breathing room, and to think that those people in the 19th century had weeks or months of breathing room before they would (laughs) have contact from people, and then all of a sudden that's gone, it's quite a dramatic change. It really is. The only thing I can equate it to in our modern world is probably the advent of the internet. Right. When we started going online. And I mean, first, it seemed amazing to begin with. But then to start, it was like a dial up connection, which was very spotty and took a mm-hmm. long time and everything was very slow. But there's oftentimes now I'll be working. And if something even takes a few seconds to load up, I'm so impatient. Yeah, Everything has to be so fast and so instant 
it's hard to imagine the patience we used to have. (laughs) And just, if you just make that, expand that by, I don't know how many degrees to the patients, people in the past used to have waiting months for a letter, waiting to hear from people uh, or get news from basically, I mean, they lived in civilization, but from like one of the big towns or something of what's happening, what, what are people doing? What are they watching? What are they reading? Yeah. Now everything happens so fast. And I think sometimes just maybe this is just because I'm tired because I've been so busy, but sometimes I think it's true. Like what you say about breathing room is it would be nice if the pace were slower, if everything didn't happen so fast so that, that you could, there was more spaces between to actually catch your breath, which we don't really seem to have anymore. Yeah. Well, this will be good a hundred years from now. Maybe someone will find this podcast and say, Oh, wow. I could have a character who is ambivalent about the progress and who thinks uh... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Okay, so do you update the aspects of the romance at all or the modern audience, or do you find that there's enough room to be still interesting when you set these characters in the past that that they can be that they're not as as repressed as we might think that is a potential here? I know you probably have you probably want to have some you know some sparks flying, but is that historically accurate? Is it a misconception on my part that there wouldn't be enough that you could draw upon that you would have to kind of depart from what was actually happening or how do you how do you manage that? I actually think there is an enormous amount of room for all kinds of any behavior you could really imagine. The mm. Victorians were not straight-laced as we imagine. I mean, yes, there were rules, there were reputations to consider and there were constraints, but I just feel like we're all sort of conditioned to believe that everyone in the era adhered to those norms, that everyone was sort of walking this very narrow path, behaving with perfect decorum. And they didn't just, I mean, basic common sense. They're human Mm. Um, people. Well, firstly, you know, if you ever read um, sort of a wide range of, of Victorian documents, whether books or articles or nonfiction, whatever, they had some pretty racy ideas back then. And people broke the rules. They acted recklessly. They did weird stuff. Mm-hmm. So much so that sometimes I find if I include any of that in, some people will be like, this doesn't seem right. like a Victorian done it. Because I think that we are conditioned, a lot of us, I hate to generalize, but I think a lot of us are conditioned to that BBC costume drama, mm-hmm. you know, or sort of old school historical romance, you know, right. behavior. And we we think that is history. And a lot of times, no, it's not. My best comparison is once in a while, there's not a lot of swearing in my novels. And that's just a personal choice of mine for the type of characters I write about. But I'll occasionally see people on social media talking about, you know, women wouldn't use this word or that word in this era. Uh, yes, they mm. did. Mm-hmm. With great gusto. <laughs> and <laughs> So I think that people have a misconception a lot of times about how how historical, you know, especially historical women behaved or that they wouldn't be promiscuous or have sex outside of marriage or they wouldn't do this or that. And none of that is true. In, in fact, that I, I think a lot of things that get accused of being historically inaccurate are more accurate than people realize. And that's led me to in my book. So I get a lot of credit for historical accuracy, and I'm very grateful that my readers feel that about my books. I just feel compelled to say that because I don't want people to think that the way I portray the situations my characters have 
is the only thing that existed, that that's the only way, you know, the straight laced people or these sort of uptight, um, very controlled people. It's definitely not the only way it was. Right. Yeah. I put in now pretty lengthy author notes explaining, you know, this is where this came from. This is where that came from. Or these are incidents where this actually happened. So I'm drawing, you know, from these actual weird events and mm. not just yeah. but trying to make it interesting, you know, out of thin air. So I think there's a huge amount to draw on from Victorian history, especially. But even, gosh, the 18th century was even more racy than oh, yeah. uh, the 19th century. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing about history that was, you know, a simpler, sweeter, gentler time. It was it was all pretty wild. Right. Okay. so on the podcast, we've talked about the romance genre before, and I have a list of common tropes that are associated with the genre. And I was going to ask if you as a practitioner in this genre would follow these tropes to the letter or if you could imagine departing from them in some way. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. Here's one. Told through the perspective of a woman. Has that been true for all your books? All of my books. I'm trying to think if I ever did one where it was just one person's perspective. It's usually a, a dual mm. perspective. Mm -hmm. About half of the scenes are from the female main character's point of view, and about half would be from the male main character's point of view. Oh. So I, I usually don't do it all just from one, and but that's just a personal preference of mine. Okay. Here's number two. Feature strong-willed and clever female characters. Hmm. That is a trope that I like, but it might man in my stories, it might manifest itself in different ways. They might seem sweeter and, and gentler and maybe not as hmm. outwardly clever or bold, but they are in their own way. I'm sort of, they take power in their own way and assert themselves um, in ways that fit their own character. But I definitely... Love women who are strong. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to have a, a female character who was just. Um, who I was going to say, I, I wouldn't want to read that in any kind of genre. I, you know, that's kind of an odd one. You wouldn't want all the women to be weak and dull. I know how boring. Or all the men. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? Nobody's just one thing. So. Right. Yeah. Even if the character has weaker moments. Nobody's just one thing. So, okay, here's this this one number three is a little trickier, I think. Okay. Good behavior is rewarded with unconditional love. Hmm. I don't I've never heard of that particular trope. Maybe you know the thing that I see more often is sort of dynamics where there's a character who tries to be good in order to earn unconditional love, usually from a parent or a parent figure, and they don't get unconditional uh, love. Yeah. So yeah. In a, in a romance, their goodness is not, in fact, rewarded. So it's sort of a source of frustration to them. Right. Which seems like it's a little more interesting. I think so. I yeah. mean, maybe similar to reading about weak characters. Who wants to read about a character who's always good and who always does the right thing and doesn't make yeah. mistakes and everybody loves them? Yeah. Yeah. That is a little that is a little strange. That that might be uh maybe a book that really doesn't ask much of the reader and is just kind of painting by numbers or something. Because I'm thinking even Jane Austen, you wouldn't see that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's the OG. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Okay. Now this, this is something that I see a lot of people talking about on Twitter. Yep. And there's some shit about this because there are some people who say romances don't all have to have a happy ending, mm -hmm. but that is, that is, in fact, a requirement of the genre. Mm. Um, it doesn't 
that the characters have to get married and have babies or right. anything like that. It just means it has to be a happily ever after, or sometimes they call it a happy for now, which they're happy in where the relationship's at and they're sort of going to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But optimistic ending is a genre requirement. Yeah. And I think that's important because it's one of the reasons people read romance is because I don't want to call it a safety net, but there is that security that no matter what the author puts their characters through, no matter how harrowing or how much it makes you cry or have anguish reading what's happening, you know that at the end, it's somehow going to be made right. And that is so important uh, for romances and for readers who depend on that in romances. So certainly all of my books have that. And all romances have that. It doesn't mean every book has to have it. There's women's fiction with elements of romance. There's uh, historical fiction with elements of romance. But an actual romance has to have a happy ending. Yeah. So if you wrote one and and decided this one is just not going to have an ending like that, it sounds like you would be telling your publisher look, we can't have, we have to change the way the cover looks. We have to change the shelf. It's going to sit on the store. This is going to frustrate and disappoint readers who are looking for something else. It can't be characterized as a romance. Yes, that's, I mean, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. And probably if I didn't catch it myself, my editor would be like, okay, wait a second. Right, right. (laughs) But yeah, just just so readers aren't disappointed. Um, It's really, it's really tough as a reader when you depend on a book having a certain quality to it as a genre. It would be like getting a mystery where there's no mystery in it. Mm, um, yeah. So, yeah, just they, there's genre requirements and readers really depend on those. It's why they choose certain books. And it, as a reader, if I spent the money and more importantly, the time investing yeah. in a story and I, I would feel not very happy with the author when I finished if uh, it let yeah. me in that way. I have a very good friend who writes literary fiction, and he had a, a brother-in-law who said to him once, when are you going to write books that people like? <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he meant that they will enjoy the ending, you know, that the endings were too dark or too bleak. And, and he was basically saying, everybody's, everybody's upset when they finish your book because they wanted it to end differently. Okay, my last one on the list strong and irresistible hero and i assume that means a man yeah well it could depending you know on on which types of romance that you're reading for mine the hero is a man strong and irresistible well he may not start out that way Mm. he may not always be traditionally good looking or rich Mm -hmm. a duke i know everybody loves duke he may (laughs) just be a tradesman or so a lawyer right (laughs) but by the end from the heroine's perspective, he is wonderful. Mm. Somebody said to me, oh gosh, this has been a long time ago, but was like, of course, you know, she fell in love with him. He's gorgeous. But in the story, the only one who ever thinks that he's gorgeous is the heroine. And I try to make that important in my stories because someone who's attractive to one person isn't going to be attractive to other people. So they may not always be the traditional, you know, tall, dark and handsome hero, you know, alpha hero, but the her- to the heroine, they are perfect. By mm. the end, they yeah. are perfect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, now that we have all these on the table, tell us about the Siren of Sussex. Who are these people and what drew you to these characters? Oh, gosh. The Siren of Sussex is the first novel in my New Bells of London series that I'm writing for the Berkeley imprint at Penguin Random House. Um, it features Ahmed Malik, 
a brilliant half Indian tailor. He first appeared in my Parish Orphans of Devon series, which is a, a Victorian series that I just concluded just like a year ago. But the heroine is Evelyn Maltravers. She's a blue stocking equestrian who approaches Ahmed to make her daring riding habit and then sparks fly. Mm. Romance ensues. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is my, my first own voices romance. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term own voices, but it's when, no. you're, it's when you're writing a romance from a personal perspective. So either you're somebody who, who has one of the qualities yourself or either race or ethnicity or a certain disability or sexual orientation. But for me, Ahmed's character is the same heritage as I have, half Indian. And a lot of the conflicts he experiences to a worse degree than I have because he's from a different era and also because he's a man are things I've experienced myself. And it was really important for me to write a story with a main character who was more like me. And a lot of this I have to attribute to my mom because Ahmed and his cousin Mira were side characters in um, my Parish Orphans of Devon series. And she asked me after I, after she, she read the book where they first appeared, how come all the characters who look like you in your stories are just the supporting characters? Mm. And I really thought about that. And I think I know the answer. I mean, it's mainly because I really didn't want to make myself vulnerable in that way. As an author, I, I have a hard time making myself vulnerable when I'm writing. And this would have been really putting myself out there in a way I didn't know if anyone criticized the story or, you know, whatever. I, I felt like it would feel 10 times worse than any normal criticism because mm. it would feel personal. Yeah. But I've had so many messages from readers who were just so excited uh, to see Ahmed as a hero and um, with his heritage and someone who looked like them and just the diversity meant so much to them. So that made me feel really, really good about writing his story and being able to show just what a great person he is and how talented and how he doesn't let the little, what we would call today, microaggression impact what he's doing in the world, sort of how he's making his mark as first as a tailor, but then as a famous dressmaker. And Evelyn also uh, is very close to my heart as an equestrian. I've had horses since I was very small and her Andalusian horse was patterned after my own Andalusian horse who passed away right when I finished the manuscript. I, I had turned it in and he, um, he colicked and passed away in February of, last, of earlier this year. So there were so many personal elements in this story, but it is primarily a, a beautiful, what I hope is a beautiful historical romance about two people who are sort of carving out space for themselves in a world where there's not already space for, for them. And they have to decide, you know, how much they're willing to give up of, of themselves in order to fit in and how much they're, of the rules they're willing to break in order to forge these new paths, in order to be together and to be fulfilled. I, I don't want to call Evelyn's horse riding a career, but it is her talent, just as dressmaker's mm. Ahmed's talent. So in a way, it's just these two people who have these gifts and how they develop these gifts and how knowing each other and being supported by each other helps them to flourish to their happily ever after. And what does she want to draw upon from him in terms of his tailoring ability? Is it something that she wants to wear at competitions or how will he help her if if he's able to supply the the dress or, or uh, right. you know, whatever she needs. Well, at the time, in the 1860s, there were courtesans who were very famous called the Pretty Horse Breakers. And they would 
ride in Rotten Row, in Hyde Park's Rotten Row, during the fashionable hour in that late afternoon, in these beautifully fitted riding habits on these magnificent horses. And they were so much talked about and so revered for their beauty and fashion and skill on horseback that they would actually draw crowds of people who would come to see them. And I read an article, I'd done a lot of research uh, on them for something else, but in one of the articles I read from the Victorian era, it talked about how the, the young women who came to London for the season had to compete with these pretty horse breakers in a way. And so would try sometimes to copy their styles, like mm. to wear just wearing habits, you know, to, to draw some of the attention, the attention away. Cause they're in London to get attention as well. They're there to make a match, you know, and they don't want all the young eligible young men staring at these courtesans. And that inspired me to have a heroine like Evelyn, who is, a very gifted horsewoman. And I imagined if she had seen articles like this herself coming up to London, she would think I'm going to hire the tailor who makes the riding habits for the pretty horse breakers. And I'm going to have him make me a habit to wear. And when I ride in Rotten Row on my magnificent horse, because I'm a better rider and I have a better horse, once I have a habit made by this tailor, uh, people aren't going to be able to look away from me. And so she went right to the source. She found out who the tailor was for the pretty horse breakers. And of course, my fictionalized element is in my story, Ahmed is the tailor who makes their habits. Right. And she goes to him and she wants him to make her a habit. And he does. And they sort of develop a artist muse relationship to begin with. And through various misfortunes, um, Ahmed ends up making Evelyn's sort of whole wardrobe for her entire season, not just her habits, but he makes her dresses too, because he's been trying to break into the dressmaking industry. Um, and so that's sort of how, how things progress. Right. But he's extremely skilled making these habits that really bring out the best in whoever wears them. They're not just this homogenous, you know, tight lacing, you know, tighten your corset and put on something skin tight. Mm. He, the way that he cuts, the way that he's able to tailor the seams and choose the colors, everything is done to sort of showcase who's ever wearing them to be the most beautiful that they can possibly be it's his talent hmm. the skill that he has as a as a tailor and he gives it all to evelyn and um but instead of attracting a husband a rich husband she falls in love with him well he happens to uh in addition to those talents he happens to have strong arms and is devastatingly handsome it, that is exactly true <laughs> okay and so the obstacles they face is it class race and ethnicity is there, are there family objections are there personality differences misunderstandings how do they what what keeps them apart at, at the outset well initially there's it's Proximity is difficult because they don't interact in any sphere outside of when she goes to him for mm. her fitting. Mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity for them to cross paths. So things have to happen, you know, to give them time together, you know, various events. But the obstacles are enormous. There's, there is, like you say, the class uh, difference. He's a tradesman. She's a gentleman's daughter. That alone would have been, a, would mm. have been enough yeah. for family to but there's also the race element. Um, he's half English, but he's also half Indian. And, yeah. you know, back then, even a little bit Indian would have been enough to spark some people's prejudice. But then, then there's also just the fact that Evelyn's family is depending on her to marry well. She has a lot of younger sisters. Um, they each need to have a season in London, which isn't cheap. And oh, it's sort yeah. of fallen on Evelyn to make a grand match. And then once she's established, to bring out each of her sisters. So she really feels the burden of this because she's close to her younger sisters and it's almost 
feels a little bit like a mother to them. Mm-hmm. So lots of, of obstacles. And, you know, of course, Ahmed, he's a little older than Evelyn. He's well-traveled. He's seen a lot of the world. He has a better insight into the the bad side of of what could happen. And he is hesitant to have a romance with Evelyn because he knows that she would be sort of sacrificing the sphere that she was born into. And then to live with him in he, what he feels is sort of an in-between world, you know, not accepted by the English, not accepted by Indian society, sort of just as an in-between existence where you are in many ways alone. And he's not sure that that's what she truly wants. Maybe this is just the first time she's fallen in love. Maybe she doesn't know her own mind. And so yeah. there's an element of trust that he has to put in her that, you know, to believe that she does know what she wants and that she is capable of living this way with him. Right. So yeah, right. enormous obstacles. Uh, well, it sounds like a lot of fun. And I also like knowing thanks to your assurances that we will end up with an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. Okay, I can't resist asking you about another one of your books. Anyone who does a podcast called The History of Literature is not going to overlook a book called John Eyre, E-Y-R-E. So (laughs) whose story do you tell in John Eyre? So John Eyre was my uh, pandemic passion project. Mm -hmm. It's not like stories. It is a Victorian Gothic novel. And it was inspired by Jane Eyre and one other novel. So it's a huge spoiler for me to say what other novel, but I can say it. And then just people who don't want to know can you say it here. We'll tell people, go ahead and hit that button to skip 15 or 30 seconds ahead. And we will uh, let you tell it for everyone who doesn't mind the spoiler. You can tell it now. Okay. It's, it's basically a mashup of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh. I loved writing this so much. I had so much fun. And it's a, it's a, Partially gender-reversed, dual-timeline, supernatural Victorian Gothic in which Jane is John. He is sort of a a school teacher down on his luck, addicted to morphine, mourning the loss of a friend um, who comes to Thornfield Hall to be tutor to two very creepy little boys. And he learns of their absent mistress, Mrs. Rochester. And a lot of very disturbing things happen while he's there that lead him to believe things aren't entirely what they seem at Thornfield Hall. Um, And he doesn't know initially how much is morphine-induced hallucination, how much is actually real. In the alternate timeline, it's Bertha Mason, and she details the events of her life in letters and journal entries um, as she travels through Egypt and then on to Eastern Europe, meeting and marrying the enigmatic Mr. Rochester, who another huge spoiler, turns out to be a vampire. Mm. So she has to, once they're married, you know, somehow get him back to England and keep him in that Sears room of Thornfield Hall. Chaos ensued. (laughs) Yeah, it was was so much fun to write. And I think uh, some of my readers were like, what the heck is this? But I warned them all in advance. And um, I think that the the people who've read it overall have, have really enjoyed it. But it, gosh, it was so much. It was so much fun to write as, as a lover of Jane Eyre and Dracula. The two stories fit together 
more seamlessly than than you probably imagine. Mm. Well, I read the description of it, and I have to say, well, first of all, you had me at Yorkshire, eighteen forty three. But in case <laughs> in case that's not enough for somebody, the second sentence of the description is: darkness abounds, punctuated by odd bumps in the night, strange creatures on the moor, and a sinister silver mist that never seems to dissipate. If that's not enough, I don't know what is. I just love stories like that. I love a good. I know. Me too. <laughs> okay, so we have two good options. We can head to uh, the world of of Jane Eyre, taking a supernatural and gothic twist, or we can stay on the lighter side of things, and uh, I mean the brighter side of the planet, and stick to the Siren of Sussex. Mimi Matthews, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. Take care. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mimi Matthews for joining us. Her book is called The Siren of Sussex. And my thanks to Margot Livesey for giving us a dose of Boswell. Just what the good doctor ordered, no pun intended. And my thanks to the people of Uganda. My goodness, we are getting around the world, aren't we? Norway, the Bahamas, Uganda... Bahrain, Lithuania, where else? I'm forgetting a few. My thanks to all of you. We have some good episodes coming up. A mega Plath Hughes Other Woman week is in the works. The other woman is Asia Wevel, who is worth our time. And we have Yates and Goethe. It's like a pronunciation test, which I pass now, hopefully. But I do know, I will confess, that in my earliest years, I got both those names wrong, pronunciation-wise, but that's okay. We all pronounce words we've only read and never heard, right? It's part of our self-education, which I am in favor of, and you should be too. So instead of Yeats and Goethe, it was Yeats and Goethe. And hey, when I hear Adele singing her song, and she gets it all wrong... Poor Adele. She doesn't know how to pronounce that German poet's name. She says Goetha on me. (laughs) Oh, I don't laugh and say, it's Goethe, Adele. It's Goethe. (laughs) Oh, of course not. Not everybody can be as smart as Jack Wilson. I feel sorry for her. Well, she has some talents in some other areas, so I guess she'll be okay. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.